Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 282, recorded January 5th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 108. Security Now is brought to you by Ford and voice-activated Sync with My Ford Touch. Make calls, play music, and more with Sync with My Ford Touch. Available exclusively on Ford and Lincoln vehicles. For more information and online demos, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. And by MailRoute.info. Businesses of every size use MailRoute, one user to 50,000 users. It doesn't matter. MailRoute will protect you from spam and viruses, simplify your life, and make your email usable again. Save 10% for the life of your account by visiting MailRoute.info. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and your privacy and all the stuff you need to know online. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. The man of the hour, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, antivirus guru, spam fighter, privacy expert, and also, you know, we talk a lot about all kinds of technologies on the internet. Good day. Happy New Year, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you. Our first episode of 2011. So, wow. absolutely. We have a Q&A since we, we did a replay in the week between Christmas and New Year's of one of our favorite episodes, everyone, all of our listeners' favorite episodes, The Portable Dog Killer. So we'll pick up where we left off. And from now on, our Q&As will be on, well, until we do another little bump, our Q&As will be on even-numbered episodes. Okay. Yeah, we don't, we're not tied to it. We do whatever. <laughs> We've got some great questions for you. We've got security updates. Uh, and this will be the one place today that you probably won't hear any CES news, I would imagine. We're just we're just barely in front of CES, but of course that's going to dominate the news cycle. Then now for the next five days, probably. Yeah. Oh yeah. Certainly us. Uh, yeah. We start our coverage uh, uh, Wednesday night at seven p.m. Pacific, ten p.m. Eastern with the digital experience. Um, Thursday we'll do showstoppers. We also have other stuff going on. I think one p.m. Thursday, Sarah and I will welcome you officially to CES because the show opens tomorrow at uh, nine a.m. Uh, so it, And then all day Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So we're going to have a lot of coverage on the Twit Network. Live.twit.tv. And many of those shows will, uh, all, I think all of it will appear on the uh, Twit Specials feed. Twit.tv slash specials. Yay. Yay. But, you know, be- usually CES doesn't have much privacy or security news. It's not, it's not really a great place for that. Right. Consumer stuff. But, you know, we have certainly, I mean, you and I both have a passion for that stuff. I'm sure our listeners do as well. So Shinies. Yes. Toys. Toys. <laughs> Boxes being, are being delivered to the front door. <laughs> yes, we do love that, don't we? <laughs> so let me uh, ask you uh, if there's any security news. What's going on in the world around us? Well, you know, I, I have planned not to do a Q&A, but only to do a major mega news update. Really? Well, because I figured that having missed, essentially missed a news cycle by doing a repeat last week, we would have two weeks worth of news accumulated rather than just our normal one. True. true. 
and nothing happened. You know, it's kind of slow. Even the hackers take the holidays off. <laughs> Even the bad guys. Bad guys have mothers and families. Exactly. So, yes, we've got some news. Um, uh, over on the security side, two IE problems, actually an IE and a Windows problem. There's a big kerfuffle going on right now with Microsoft accusing a Google employee of having not given them sufficient notice of the bug that we did talk about two weeks ago. It had just surfaced and there was, it was a, we knew that it was a CSS problem of some sort. We didn't really know what it was. Now we know that it involves the, the at import rule processing of cascading style sheets in IE, which, you know, makes everyone's eyes cross, but you know, that's where the problem is. And it exists in all releases of Internet Explorer, manifesting itself on XP, Vista, and Win 7. It's a remote code exploitable problem. Unfortunately, this one DLL that it targets is called the mscoreie.dll. It was not compiled with the, with the so-called dynamic base switch. That's the switch that the compiler can, can um, accept which allows it to float around, allows that DLL to float around and load in different places in memory. In other words, that's the, the famous address space layout randomization, ASLR, which is now actively working to support many of the kinds of attacks that we've seen in the past. Because this DLL was not compiled with that switch. Maybe it's incompatible with floating around. Who knows? I mean, there may have been a reason for it rather than just oversight. Or they may have just, you know, among all the code that goes into IE, they may have skipped one. So what happened is the bad guys figured out how to use the fact that this DLL always loads at a known location that allows them to use so-called ROP, R-O-P, or return-oriented programming gadgets, where they jump to the end of subroutines in that DLL, and then the subroutine retur- it finishes and returns to the caller, that is, to them. So by cleverly using sort of the tails of existing code, that also allows them to avoid the DEP protection, the data execution protection, because they're not executing data, they're actually executing code. They're executing Microsoft's code, but certainly in a way that Microsoft never intended. So what happened is, and and I'm going to talk next week about the whole concept of fuzzing. It's not something we've talked about before, but but this revolves around a fuzzing technology which is to say throwing lots of bizarre stuff at code and looking for any misbehavior. Um, um, the guy who did this uh, is someone we've, we've talked about before, um, uh, Mikhail Zalewski, who is a security guy at Google. Back in July, he notified Microsoft of this problem and gave them his code, which made the problem happen. He heard nothing from them. Wow. And, and back then he told them that he planned to release this code in January of 2011. Is that, that's fairly typical uh, 
from a security researcher to say, here's oh. the code, you got some time to fix it, but then six we have months. to tell the world. Yeah, Six months, exactly. And so, and so what's happened is now Microsoft is, is coming back and saying, well, we didn't get, this was not responsible disclosure, we weren't told in time, and, and, and they're saying we were unable to duplicate the problems. Well, they never told him that, they just didn't respond at all. At, when, when he sent them this whole well, care they package, they were busy uh, <laughs> with <laughs> they, all their other problems. They were, yes, <laughs> I know. So, oh. so now they're saying that we need more time, and he says, "Sorry, um, I told you, you know, last summer what was you know I gave you the whole ability to reproduce it." They're saying, "Well, it didn't reproduce." Other people, and now Microsoft, have been able to reproduce it with that July code, even though. What he's now released publicly is a much more updated code. The significant thing about this, well, I mean, so, so we have one more IE problem. This tool found more than 100 problems spread across every browser there is. So we'll be talking about that tool next week. Sorry Since about that. I didn't have my, I had my mic on. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably wondering why I was apologizing for driving Whoa. you crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I apologize. <laughs> so anyway, so the problem we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Microsoft has now acknowledged. The good news is next uh, Tuesday will be the 11th since this last Tuesday that's just behind us uh, would have been the 5th. So... Is that right? Anyway, whatever it is, it's the second Tuesday. <laughs> Today's today. Yes, last yesterday was the fourth, so it'll be the eleventh. Perfect. Yeah. So Tuesday the eleventh, that'll be the second Tuesday of January. Maybe if Microsoft is on their game, they'll be able to fix this. And there's another new <laughs> zero day problem that they have found across all versions of Windows uh, in the graphics side of their OS. Not much is known. They've got a security uh, advisory posted, but you know, hopefully we'll be talking about these both as being in the past tense uh, next week. Yay. In big news that I, many people sent and faxed and emailed and tweeted. I mean, I was getting hit from all sides. Um, uh, after Christmas on the 28th, Tuesday the 28th, at the Chaos Computer Club, the CCC Congress in Berlin, which we've covered in years past. Is that, is um, that like a hacker con? Yes, it is. Uh, chaos being the the, cue to, the uh, clue to that. Um, a group, uh, t- uh, two guys with Security Research Labs, which is srlabs.de, showed why and how the GSM Association was wrong. About a year before, they, and we covered this at the time, uh, the assertion was made that the GSM cellular network was too hackable. And we talked about the the crypto that they use. In fact, I referred to them just two weeks ago because GSM, being very old technology, uses a sort of pre-crypto approach. They also use those linear feedback shift registers, which Bluetooth uses in a in a relatively safe way GSM, unfortunately, is is not so lucky with their use of the same technology. And in fact, actually, it's because of 
the Bluetooth technology arising originally from Ericsson that is a GSM-oriented cellular phone designer um, before Sony bought them, and they, of course, became Sony Ericsson. They, that's where this. That's why Bluetooth uses the same sort of technology that that GSM uses, sort of from a common heritage. Um, the problem is that there is a huge amount of known, what's called known plain text in crypto, in the cellular protocol, meaning that a lot of what's sent out over the wire or thrown out over the air is is we know what it is that has been encrypted and it the the technology generates a the uses these linear feedback shift registers to generate a pseudo random bit stream which is then exclusive ORD with the plain text to create the cipher text as our listeners know when you XOR the cipher text again with the with the bitstream, you get back the plain text. That's how you decrypt it. The other little quirk about XORing, though, is if you were to XOR instead, you XOR the encrypted data with the known plain text, what you get back is the bitstream, that is the the original cipher bitstream. So what's been generated in the meantime are two new technologies. There is now available for downloading on BitTorrent a two terabyte rainbow table for GSM. So to remind our listeners, a rainbow table is essentially a, it's a, a table of, of some crypto operation, typically hash tables, which have been performed once. Kind of pre-calculated. Exactly, pre-calculated. So it's a it's a one-way function which has been has been has been um, performed once, and then the results stored, so that you have this you have sort of the results of this operation stored. So I you don't think have to of do it them as all- in the old days before calculators and slide maybe not before slide rules, but you'd get these uh, sine and cosine tables. Yeah, exactly. It would just be pre-calculated and, math. Exactly. So so. What these allow you to do is they they allow you to essentially perform the the reverse function, even though the point of the crypto is for there not to be one. That is, it's like for example, a hash is meant to be a forward function, such that you put all this stuff in and you get out a result. But that fun it's a one way function. You you can only go forward. You can't go backwards. But think about it. If you were to record in a table all of the results of going forward, then you look up in the table, the result, it's going to be matched up with, with what you put in to get that result out, which, ascent, which allows you to go backwards. So it defeats that, <laughs> it, it defeats that one-way function. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So that, so that was one part. The second thing they did, one of the arguments that the GSM Association made where they were defending themselves, saying, oh, no, 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 don't worry. GSM technology, which is global, is still secure. Don't have to worry. They were talking about how, oh, it takes huge amounts of money and expertise and wide band technology and fancy antennas and, you know, 
feel programmable gate array custom boards you know the point being that it's there was a bar way too high right okay these two guys demonstrated the entire attack on voice and text using four modified $15 oh. cell phones. <laughs> I was, I was going to say uh, Commodore 64s. It's worse. <laughs> it was on the phone. For a total cost of $60. Oh, yeah, yeah, caramba. Four $15 phones. They they reprogrammed the phones to work differently, Jeez so they weren't boys. still cell phones like in the old days. Right. But that the the code to do that is open source. They added USB a faster USB connection, so that they were able to move data at the, at the speed they needed to. But basically, they've completely demonstrated a low bar. That is to say. You know, less than a hundred dollars wow. and a soldering iron, and go to BitTorrent, and you can get the. You know, and it's funny too because Bruce Schneier in his blog also picked up on this, as did Engadget and a bunch of other people. Right. Schneier mentioned that you know two terabytes. Okay, we don't even blink at the, when we say that anymore. Yeah, you know, ten years ago that would have that would have been impossible. It would have been, I mean, well, impossible, but a you know, yeah, you're hugely not going to download two terabytes. No. no, now people use them as doorstops. <laughs> so it's just not a problem. Oh, Lord. Hey, we, I know you have more. Uh, there's some WikiLeaks news uh, on the agenda. I'm very curious about that. I just read Bruce uh, Sterling's really excellent uh, analyst, analysis of uh, WikiLeaks. If, no, if you haven't read it yet, read it. Um, I'll find a link for you, put it in the show notes. But um, it's, the reason it's germane to uh, us is because he talks about hackers and kind of their motivation. He talks about Bradley Manning. And, and it, I think it's it's a really great, you know, Bruce has written a lot about hackers, has dealt with hackers a lot. And it's a really good insight into these guys who I think a lot of us think of as shady, dark characters. No, it's, it's, it's us. It's people we know. It's you know who these people are, you know, and they're not maybe even that political, to be honest. They just like to hack. So, uh, and Julian Assange is a hacker. So we'll talk, uh, we'll talk about WikiLeaks in just a second. Before we do that, though, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, plug our trip. I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show to CES. I'm, I kind of have to admit I'm kind of a little excited about this. And I want to thank our friends at Ford who are making it possible. I don't even want to think of how big a check I had to write for this. Uh, but <laughs> it is worth it. Uh, we really believe our live coverage of events like CES uh, adds huge value to the Twit Network. It's kind of where I want to go with it. I want to make it the CNN of tech, you know, with great shows like Security Now, but also great news coverage of things that are happening right now. And there's no better place to go than CES. But you can imagine it's fairly expensive. It's not as expensive as when the Tech TV did it. We spent a million dollars going down to CES or Comdex every year, a million dollars. But they had a sat truck. They had, you know, brought probably two or three times the number of people. I'm bringing about 15 people down, unless we get a lot of volunteers. But thanks to the Internet, we could do it a lot less ex expensively. Nevertheless, it's a bit of a chunk for a little guy like me. So I'm thrilled that we could get somebody like Ford to step forward and say, OK, we agree. We believe. That happens that Ford's going to be a big part of the story there. In fact, we're talking to Alan Mulally tomorrow morning, the CEO of Ford. We'll have an exclusive interview with him. He's giving a keynote on Friday morning. Actually, maybe I'm talking about Friday morning. I'll have to, I'll have to look at the schedule. Um, Ford's going to be making some big announcements with uh, Ford Sync. And, you know, I, 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 there was an announcement that kind of went under the, under the radar just a couple of days ago. 
you can now using Android or iPhone. There's a Ford Sync app for those phones that you can you can be looking at something on your phone, saying, oh, "I'm going to go there." It'll tell you uh, about the destination, uh, traffic conditions on the way, and so forth. Then you press send to the car, and when you get in the car, the car's ready. It says, "Let's go." Ford is turning a car, your car, your Ford or Lincoln or Mercury vehicle into a connected vehicle. And here's the trick, and this is where Ford engineers have really done a good job they, without distracting you. How do you do that? Ford Sync and the amazing My Ford Touch. Now, the idea is you're going to keep your hands on the wheel, 10 and 2, right? Your eyes on the road, but you tell the car, you talk to the car, you tell it what you need. So, you get hands-free calling. I mean, true hands-free calling. You press a, you, you don't even lift your hands off the wheel. You, there's a button right there on the steering wheel. I, it's funny because I have the muscle memory of where it is. I know right where it is. It goes boom, and you tell it, call Steve Gibson at home. Call Steve Gibson on his cell. Uh, and it does it. It downloads your address book from your phone. So it knows every address, every phone number. You can use the GPS to go to somewhere on your address book in the car. FordSync has built-in GPS, even if you don't buy the bigger GPS package. So it'll give you turn-by-turn directions, even rerouting you if there's traffic in the, on the way. They have personalized traffic alerts, personalized weather alerts along the way. That's important during this uh, nasty winter we've been having. Uh, on Windows Phone 7 and many Android phones like the Droid X, it'll read your text messages aloud to you. There's 911 Assist. It bonds to the phone. A lot of the functionality of Ford Sync, and this is with a kind of very clever thing they did, they realize your phone is going to get updated a lot more quickly than your car is. Uh, although you can update, Ford Sync has, uh, and My Ford Touch has USB ports. There's two in the My Ford Touch. There's one in the Ford Sync, plus an SD card reader on the My Ford Touch. So you can update, and I have updated the software in there. But truthfully, the big update comes when you get a new phone. The capabilities of the phone are enhancing the Ford Sync. So the 911 Assist, it pairs with your phone. It says, all right, 911 Assist is on. You could turn it off if you want. But I think leave it on because when the airbags are deployed, it will call 911, feed them your GPS coordinates. Wow. Play a recorded message and then give you a chance to speak. Open up the mic in the cabin. I just did my vehicle health report. I do it every 5,000 miles. It will do complete vehicle. You know, they have that, um, what do they call it, the OD3? A connector in there, and people buy these devices. You connect it, download it. You don't have to do that. The, the Ford uses your phone to send a vehicle history report to SyncMyRide.com, including maintenance information, recall information, vehicle diagnostics. You can even schedule service through it at the Sync Owner Center website, Sync. MyRide.com. Now, if you haven't been there, go to SyncMyRidePodcast.com and you'll see all the, there's videos there explaining how it works. And if you haven't seen Sync, or better yet, the MyFord Touch, the new upgraded Sync, which has uh, an 8-inch touchscreen in the center stack, two five-way switch pads on the steering wheel, so you get a lot more control, three LCD screens in total, two of them are behind the wheel. You can switch between voice commands and touch controls on the fly. Sync understands 10,000 plus voice commands. You stay connected to the world, but you keep your eyes on the... It's amazing, isn't it, Steve? Wow. I mean, you know, it's funny because we take these things so happen so gradually, you know, like we're the frog in the, in the boiling water. We don't, we don't... But if you think about it, yeah, wow. It's like Knight Rider. If you haven't tried it, go uh, to a Ford dealer near you and try Sync with my Ford Touch. Your Ford or Lincoln uh, Mercury... Not, Sync is available for Ford Lincoln Mercury vehicles. My Ford Touch is Ford and Lincoln vehicles. Go to SyncMyRidePodcast.com. And once again, thanks to Ford for making our CES 2011 coverage possible. Um, they've been a great partner for us, I have to say. Been, this is our second year with Ford. Or is it our third? Second. 
No, third. Third calendar year. Because I bought my Mustang October 20, 2009. Wow. Yeah. All right, moving on. WikiLeaks. What's... Yeah, well, there was just um, a couple things. The Washington Post uh, had an article. Uh, one of their staff reporters, uh, jo- Joby Warwick, um, had some little tidbits that I hadn't seen before. Um, apparently, the CIA had been asked to put their data onto the cybernet. Remember, we did talk about the cybernet a couple of weeks ago as being this secure, essentially a secure version of the Internet. It uses Internet technology, mm-hmm. Internet protocol, Internet routers. It's just, you know, not the net that we're all on and connected to. It's a separate one. And the CIA's rationale for denying that they just dump all of their assets onto that net is just one of security. They said there are too many people. There are 2.5 million people who have access to that. Not just government, but also government contractors have access. And this is the so-called net-centric diplomacy was the the name that the system was given, um, which was set up um, when it was decided that there was just... Too little communication, too little interagency communication, and uh, in, in the w- what's the term they use? Um, smokestacking, I think, or <laughs> no, with, oh, with oh, a siloing or um, si- siloing is one. I've yeah. also heard them like you know the idea being that they're just like tubes that are not you know not that, that are yeah. uh, surrounding the entities that are not intercommunicating. Um, the NSA has taken this all much more seriously. Being the NSA, they're saying stove piping. Stove piping. That's, that's what the chat room said. Stove piping. Thank that's you, the term I was looking for. Yep. Yes, um, the NSA is is being the NSA is proactively taking the stance that they now they no longer can trust anything in their own network and systems, and they're assuming that they've been compromised and they're going to act accordingly. So it it sort of reminded me of our standard wisdom with PCs is once malware gets into your computer, you really can never know that you got rid of it all. I mean, once it's happened, you really need to just, hard as it is, to pull your data off and then set up the system from scratch and then restore your data because otherwise you never, there's just no way to know that you got rid of it all. Yeah. But the way apparently this all sort of got out of control is there was a a keyword flagging system in this net-centric diplomacy technology such that if the, the, if the key tag SIPDIS, which is probably an acronym for something, SIPDIS, that would flag any document or communication like a cable as, as um, um, appropriate for archiving in this net-centric database. But what ended up happening, because embassy staff were never really given a clear protocol or guidelines is, except they were told, okay, we got to stop sharing, we got to stop keeping all this information to ourselves, we're supposed to share it with everybody. So they started flagging everything with this SIPDIS since there was no clear policy. And as a consequence, when, you know, after the WikiLeaks problem happened, um, people who knew what this net-centric database should contain looked into it more c- carefully and closely and just saw that it was full 
of improper and inappropriate information, stuff that wasn't about, you know, um, maintaining this, the security of the country. But as we've seen, all kinds of other stuff got loose. And quoting one line from this Washington Post article, um, uh, Joby wrote, partly because of its design, but also because of confusion among its users, the database became an inadvertent repository for a vast array of State Department cables, including records of the U.S. government's most sensitive discussions with foreign leaders and diplomats. Unfortunately for the department, the system lacked features to detect the unauthorized downloading by Pentagon employees and others of massive amounts of data, according to State Department officials and information security experts. So not only was the system a repository for much more than was than what than was it was designed to receive and and anything tagged a, a, anything that was transmitted over this cypernet that was tagged with this SIPDIS flag would automatically get archived in this net center democracy system or diplomacy system but additionally there was no controls there was no monitoring there was there was no auditing or logs of of any access to this database. So, you know, it has all the earmarks of something that was sort of thrown together way too quickly um, in a hurry to solve the problem, but without the kinds of mature security and privacy controls on it that, um, you know, that all of us would know such a system would need. And, you know, we know what happened as a result. Yeah. The, uh, it actually isn't easy to find the Bruce Sterling uh, article. He wrote it for... Uh, Webstock, which is a New Zealand conference, if you go to webstock.org.nz and search for Blast Shack, it's a fairly long piece, a couple of thousand words, and I think quite interesting, especially if you're interested in hackers and how, what that has to do with WikiLeaks. And sort of their psychology. I did, psychology. I did read did that you read piece, it? by the way. Yeah, yes. I thought it was quite good. He wrote it right before Christmas. I like yeah. Bruce a lot. we got to get him on the show. Well, and Stuxnet. Yeah, Stuxnet. Um, there's continuing to be information coming out. Uh, I picked up a few more tidbits I just thought I would share, which was um, a report from ISIS, uh, ISIS, the Institute for Science and International Study, indicated that apparently as many as 1,000 out of 10,000, that is to say 10% of the centrifuges which were at one point commissioned and running in the nuclear facility in Iran, which it is believed Stuxnet was targeting, have since been decommissioned. It's believed because that they were made to malfunction physically, essentially physically damaged by Stuxnet. Um, they're called IR-1 centrifuges, and they're supposed to run at precisely 1,064 hertz. That is, believe it or not, you know. And is that like 1,064 RPM or RPS? Um, it well, it's not clear what the relationship between the and, uh, the the AC frequency right. going into the motor. It'll be a synchronous. It'll be a synchronous. Uh, centrifuge motor which is locked to the frequency that it's given and so in order in order to exactly control its speed right 
But, but, but what we do know is that Iran was apparently running theirs a little slow, about 1,007 hertz, specifically reduce, to do, reduce stress. So as I understand it, already at the, at, this, at the 1,064 hertz, which is the spec for these IR1 centrifuges, they're at about the limit of what they can physically handle. It's interesting how much, I mean, j- just a, a flywheel itself generates tre- generates tremendous stresses inside of itself. There was a there was a project that Ben Rosen of of um, you know Rosen Research fame, uh, and then and then later Rosen Motors. Ben created a flywheel based um, energy store for um, uh, a, a, a electric car drivetrain, and it turns out that advanced energy stores like that they use bristles rather than solid disks because solid disks self-destruct when they spin that fast due to essentially i mean you know they're they're pulling themselves apart where so you end up with with a hub of bristles and that's what you spin in a in a in a vacuum because that's a an an architecture which is stable under those kinds of um forces so um, what has been found is, relative to Stuxnet, is that it was instructing these centrifuges, which are, are already running near their limit at 1,064 hertz, to run at 1,410 hertz, which would either immediately damage them physically or would cause them to like crumble within about 15 minutes. And so further analysis of the code has shown that it would it would spin the centrifuges up to this higher speed and hold them there for a while and then bring them back down and then go quiescent for 27 days so there were like 27 days would 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 elapse between these attacks um and it's believed that's just to have the thing hiding most of the time so that it wasn't obvious what was going on. That's clever, actually. That's actually very clever. It's very clever. And then the thing that really caught my eye was that it deliberately disguised this activity by sending commands to shut off the warning and safety controls that would otherwise have alerted the plant operators. Clever. So to me, Leo, I mean, as an engineer myself, if someone said, Steve, we need you to do this, I would need one. I mean, you, <laughs> you'd have to you have know, this centrifuge. Yeah. There's no way you could do it without it. And you'd need to know a lot about it. Exactly. It, for, for this kind of, of design, especially when I heard that it was sending commands to shut off the warning and safety controls that would normally alert plan operators, you can't do that from spec sheets. I mean, in order to do it reliably, you would need one of these centrifuges in a system working in order to proof and and debug and perfect your code which which to my mind really does up the up the ante of the notion that you know that this was probably state sponsored by some state you know meaning government level sponsorship of this you know to uh, to this point i was well, like is that well, cuz they're so it, expensive is that why or well, yeah, yeah, you just don't order a nuclear <laughs> refining centrifuge. You can't just some, buy it from a catalog? Yellow, I got some yellow cake at a yard sale. 
I'd like to. So is that know, the only get, thing these centrifuges are used for? Is concentrating? Only, okay. Yeah, it's the only thing they can. That's what no, they're. That's what go. they do. I think. You know, I think now not, we know it is a government. Not available obviously. from you know eBay. So, wow. Yeah. Did yeah. they also have to have the Siemens equipment? Uh, I imagine they did as well. Yes. You would need a work, essentially a working installation. <laughs> of, uh, you know, So we can assume to, it's a nuclear power that did it, right? It really has to be. Or somebody who really has high aspirations. It, I mean, look, it's obviously Israel. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be. Yeah, it was well, I, I, I don't mean it's got to be Israel. It's got to be a nuclear government. power. It's, it's, it has to have been somebody who, who essentially had... This a facility like this, so they were able to right. create, you know, the same centrifuges, the same controllers, the, the the same technology, because you just you can't write and debug code blind. You you'd have to test it. You'd have to see that it was doing the right thing in order to in order to know that you were going to uh, generate a payload for this worm that was going to be effective at the other end. So in detective so, work, you always say opportunity, motive. Means, motive, and opportunity. And means. So yeah. the means require a nuclear power. The motive is pretty clear. Somebody who would want to slow down Iran's nuclear capability. I mean, it's not just some hacker in a closet somewhere. No. Um, and yeah. opportunity, well, that could be anybody because the Internet gives everybody the opportunity. Well, and we got worms. I mean, a lot of other people right. got infected by Stuxnet who weren't running any IR1 centrifuges. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So they released it to the wild. It wasn't a spear phishing attack. Correct. It, uh -huh. it, it just jumped around and, and, and jumped onto people's thumb drives. It was believed to have been brought in on a thumb drive. But, you know, many other organizations found this curious code and uh -huh. said, well, we have, we have a worm with an unknown payload. Right. And it's taken quite, a, you know, quite many months to, to peel the onion layers off of this payload. And the more we see, the more we learn, you know, the more it, I'm coming to the opinion that it really took a, sub a substantial effort to put this thing together. Here's a question. Could it have been accidentally self-inflicted? Could Iran have been making such a thing? Um, no, because, oh, you mean like to get somebody else? Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, yes, they, they would have had the, they would have had, obviously, the whole setup there if they were trying to target somebody else's equipment. There were two countries. I think it was Iran and maybe Pakistan. I can't remember now. There were two countries that were known to have this exactly this type of equipment so um apparently there are many different versions of of stuff well, that's that you, interesting that you can use so yeah, i guess you could if you were a detective trying to figure this out as presumably somebody is you'd say well who has this maybe not, right. not everybody uses the same stuff right mm -hmm. and you might want to ask also who ordered one <laughs> Yeah, anyway, interesting. The, uh, on the ongoing saga of IP, IP space depletion, which is our other news of 2011, we'll be following this. Um, the IANA will be handing out probably in the next few weeks, so probably sometime, it's expected by the end of January, the last of the slash eight net blocks to each of the major registries. So there's... You know, there's um, uh, AP NIC, the which is Asian Pacific NIC. There's uh, Afrinic. Um, there's a couple 
uh, they're like a handful, f- four or five major registries that that each handle their region of the globe. And they receive the net blocks from the IANI, IANA, that, that essentially makes um, those then active. And then they turn around and start satisfying their um, the needs of the people who they supply. So there's a, you know, a, a multi-level tiered hierarchy of, of um, allocation of this space. Um, we're still, however, on target for eh, late summer, early fall uh, um, doomsday. <laughs> we're, oh, good. We're no more, I'll we're, put it on the no- calendar. No more IP4 addresses are available. Um, That's soon. It's really soon. We're not uh, ready. People are beginning to scurry around. There is a deployment guideline. NIST, uh, N-I-S-T, has released their final version of the IPv6 deployment guidelines, which is a 118-page document. Um, we're going to do a podcast just on it soon because it's got... A whole bunch of really interesting material in there that I know our listeners will be interested in because sooner or later we're all going to be be affected by IPv6. At this point, very few of us are, but that's uh, that's not going to be the case for long. Yeah. Um, in a, a matter of errata, I wanted to respond to many of our listeners who have said, "Hey, Steve, whatever happened to the How the Internet Works series?" So I wanted to. Let everyone know that I have not forgotten about it. There are just a few things like this deployment guideline, and I want to talk about attacking uh, Bluetooth um, next week, uh, following up on our our discussion of how Bluetooth works two weeks ago. Um, so there are a few more things that I've sort of just got backlogged, and then we will absolutely plow into our um, very careful basically soup to nuts from the bits all the way up to the 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 top level operation of the internet you know packet flow and routing and and all that stuff i look forward to that i think people will enjoy and i had a just a very nice short note from someone named rick shepherd that i wanted to share he says uh he's in reno nevada and he said i could easily give you several specific spin stories and go on about how our site license has been used to save many hard drives. I could do that, but so many already have. Instead, I will state only this. Of all the products I have ever bought, sold, researched, or discussed, only Spinrite holds one special title. Nobody I have ever dealt with anywhere and in any capacity has ever said anything bad about Spinrite. No other product has that kind of record. So you I thought what? that was... I think that's true. And I, <laughs> and I have to say, we, you know, I hear because we advertise a number of uh, different products, I hear whenever anybody's unhappy about any of those products, and there's no product, however good, that doesn't get an occasional ding. You it's, look at yeah. Amazon, there's no great... I mean, look at the Kindle, everything. Somebody doesn't like something. I've never seen it. <laughs> That's a very good point. 
nobody's ever, I've never, well, now we don't want to tempt fate here. So. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Rick. Uh, next topic. <clears throat> next topic. <laughs> Let's take a break. We have great questions. Ten of them from you, the listeners. You went to uh, grc.com slash feedback and you asked those questions and I'm glad you did. And I'd like to ask you a question. Have you taken the Twit survey? You know, our sponsors uh, know exactly how many people listen to a show. But what they don't know and what they would love to know is kind of who you are. Not individually, but as an aggregate. Are you, you know, how, are you young? Are you old? Where do you live? That kind of thing. Because we're not tracking you. No, we no, don't no, know no, anything no, no. about you. And it's not, you have and, to tell us. Yes. Well, that's a good point. There's a nice spin on it. We don't want individual information. You will take the survey, but you'll take it anonymously, and we'll aggregate the information. And that lets us say to our sponsors, for instance, well, you know, we got uh, 53% males, uh, 25, 54, whatever it is they're looking for. Uh, it is at twit.tv. I made a bit.ly link because if you're running ad blockers, and I, I suspect more than any other show we do that Security Now people run all sorts of ad blockers and <laughs> flash blockers and javascript blockers so if you're running no script or an ad blocker you can go to bit.ly slash listener survey it's at bit.ly bit.ly slash listener survey or just go to twit.tv if you're not running a blocker or if you're not blocking our stuff at right at the top there there's a, a banner it's a five page survey It'd take you five minutes ten minutes to do depending on how long you think about it, it should be pretty quick at the end we'll ask you if you want to be a part of our panel uh, the PodTrack panel. The, our ad agency does all this. We don't do it. The ad agency does it. And the PodTrack panel um, helps us with research about uh, advertising and so forth. Advertisers, I'll give you as an example, often will say, okay, we want to do a survey before you run the campaign and after to see if there was recognition of the product, if people heard it, if they understood it. And those those panels help us an awful lot as well. It's one of the reasons people keep coming back to Twit, frankly, to advertise because we work. So you can help us twit.tv just right at the top there or go to bit.ly bit.ly slash listener survey and we'd appreciate your support are you ready for a question my friend let's do it all right let's do it let's do this thing number one from Ron i love his name ranga reddy in asbury park new jersey home of bruce springsteen wonders about ssds and full drive encryption i wonder now that he mentions it i wonder about know this about too been a big fan of the security now podcast since year one security and privacy issues Sometimes annoy and anger me. But since I listen to your podcast while working out, it fuels my workout. That's good. Put the frustration and anger right into that Stairmaster. Uh, you recently stated that SSDs don't need defragging. They also don't need spin write. Correct. Uh, because the excessive rights of defragging would ruin the drive. And fragmentation is not an issue because there's effectively zero seek time on a random access uh, drive like an SSD. How about full drive encryption? Is that going to cause the same thrashing of bits, TrueCrypt, BitLocker, FileVault, and so on? Does full drive encryption affect SSDs? Well, sort of. Um, the um, My advice with SSDs and defragging is maybe to just defrag it once. Once the system's all been established and all the endless security updates are installed and your apps have been installed on a machine, I would say... I like the idea of just sort of organizing it one time just because if you've ever looked at the fragmentation of a drive after a full system set up, it's just a catastrophe. I mean, it's a disaster. And if something ever did happen to the the directory structure 
of the file system, then having the files defragged, that is in, in continuous runs, you know, contiguous runs of sectors on the SSD could help data recovery software to guess where the file extents are, where the file begins and ends and, and so forth. So, so I like the idea of doing it once. It's absolutely something you do not need to do all the time. Now, relative to um, whole drive encryption, when you encrypt the drive, that would run across the entire drive contents once, converting every sector of 4,096 bits, every 512-byte sector of the SSD from plain text into ciphertext. So that's something that happens one time when you imply, when you apply the whole drive encryption and and it happens again if you ever remove the whole drive encryption but in use there is no difference so it's sort of a little bit like defragging that is there there's a, a cost to it to apply the encryption but not to use it so there's no additional wear and tear that's occurring on the SSD because it's running through TrueCrypt or BitLocker or FileVault or, or any of those. One pass across, and, and again, I'm, I'm overly concerned about SSD reliability just because I'm overly concerned about data reliability in general. You know, SSDs are solid state. They are robust. Um, they're far more reliable than hard drives, which is well, why SpinWrite exists and 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 how I've you know made my living for the last couple of decades. Yeah, SSDs, you know about it. You know all about it. You're the exactly. guy to ask. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, defragging an SSD all the time makes no sense because there is no aware there is aware factor on solid state drive technology, which is why they go to all this, you know, drive leveling um, approach so that even if you appear to be rewriting the same spot over and over and over, you're actually writing in different physical areas of the SSD so that you don't burn out one particular area. They, they, you really can burn them out. I know, for example, Mark Thompson has done so with compact flash drives. And I'll, I'll say again, you absolutely want to turn off your swapping. You do not want to have a swapping file, uh. you know, the, the virtual memory on that drive. Typically these days, I think the need for virtual memory is diminishing because it's so easy to run two or three gigs of a regular solid state, you know, primary RAM on your machine. Um, I, I often don't have a swap, a swap file on any even of my machines that have physical drives. It just, you know, it's becoming less necessary, I think. But you really, it doesn't make sense to have a swap file on an SSD because even though it would offload your RAM, then you really are exercising that SSD all the time while the system is is copying RAM in and out of, of the drive. So that, that you do want to turn off. But encryption, I, I think it's a good idea and uh, there's no downside to it. That's uh, good to, actually really good to know. Um, we talk a lot about SSDs on our This Week in Computer Hardware show. If you're interested in SSDs in general, Alan Malventano is a whiz on SSDs, and he talks a lot about the various uh, 
controllers. The, you know, the Sandforce controller apparently is the one he likes the best. There's all sorts of very interesting stuff. And we will be talking a lot about it uh, at CES. Another plug <laughs> yeah. with Alan. Uh, we're doing this week in computer hardware, um, I think on Friday at uh, around noon. Cool. Pacific. Kevin Autumn in Des Moines, Iowa offers some comments on Peter F. Hamilton books, which you and I both love. Yep. Merry Christmas, avid listener, spinwright owner. Uh, I heard when you were talking about the uh, science fiction you've both been reading. I really appreciate your suggestions. I've read several. I started with Fallen Dragon. Steve and I agree that's that's our favorite. Certainly the most accessible. Then Pandora's Star and Judas Unchanged, Unchained, which is a lot of work. <laughs> Those are long books. And enjoyed them very much. A few weeks ago, I completed listening to the audio versions of the Void trilogy, which I haven't listened to. He says they were fantastic. Give them another look. I will. In fact, I'll put them on my... Uh, my list. I, too, was a bit put off by the mysticism and religious cult aspects in the synopsis, but in actually reading the books, I was pleasantly surprised. I will remain spoiler-free, he says, but I'll simply recite one of Arthur C. Clarke's laws. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Being a fan of hard science, I don't think you will be disappointed. Reminds me of Heinlein. Remember how he had cars that would grab energy from the air and it felt like magic? I think they even referred to it as magic. Right, But just because it was ill-understood. Also, this takes place in the same universe as Pandora's Star. And since technology allows humans to live practically forever, many characters from that series return. Well, that's good. Because I loved the characters. Yes. Peter writes the best character. One of the things I like about him, besides the fact that he's good hard science, is he's extremely good at characterizations, descriptions. You really, he's a vivid writer. Um, so I wanted to let our listeners know, and Kevin that um, I'm already up to speed with, with him and this. Um, I'm still really enjoying the f- book I'm reading now, the fourth in the series of the, of the Helfort, uh, uh, Helfort Wars, I think is the name of the series. Is that also Peter Hamilton? No. Oh. Um, but I was, I was wondering about the Void trilogy, and I did a little more digging and I discovered the same characters from um, Pandora's Star were there, who, just as you said, Leo, I really like. I mean, you know, we have Paula is, is, is back um, um, among other people who are still knocking around. And, and, uh, and what Kevin said, you know, that any sufficiently advanced technology is in, indistinguishable from magic. He's, he's implying that, yes, while it looks like mysticism and, you know, who knows what, it's actually technology. So um, I've got the first of the trilogy, um, which I'm excited about because, you know, I'm looking for something really good and really long to keep me occupied while I'm exercising. And no one could do that better than Peter Hamilton. Yeah, that's what I, one of the things I really like about long books is you exercise more. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. and by the way, they are all on um, Audible. Yes. Uh, the Dreaming Void. The Evolutionary Void, The Temporal Void. Those are the three? Yes. Highly rated on Audible. Wow. And they're each over 20 hours. <laughs> if, you, if you read all three of them or listened to all three of them on audible.com, you'd have well over 70 hours worth of uh, enjoyment. Yeah, and the good news is that they're all done. It's very frustrating to, to read. Oh, cause, cause Peter that was hard. With, yes. Yeah. Was yeah it, he, he, he does these multi-volume right. monstrosities and... And it's like, oh, now I got to wait for the next one to come out. So. We fi- we finished uh, Pandora's Star before Judas Unchained came down, and we were yes. just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, let's go to question number three. Uh, Dusan Malatich in Babylon, New York, suggests that do not call is fundamentally different than do not track. Uh, 278, you talked briefly about do not track uh, for Internet browsing and its similarities to the do not call list and systems for telephones. One difference hasn't been mentioned. Do not call applies to the system where every single individual is precisely defined and numbered by your phone number, obviously. Right, exactly. Hence, do not call can be implemented without any you know, challenges. But the do not track idea on the Internet, unfortunately, has built-in problems. To be tracked, you've got to be identified. But not to be tracked also involves identification first and a demand not to be tracked under that identity. You cannot track who you do not know how to track. <laughs> <laughs> So, unfortunately, the very act of identifying yourself not to be tracked accomplishes exactly what the tracker wants most, establishing your unique identity. Well, that's an interesting point. Couple that with the inability to easily determine what the other party's doing with your information. With do not call, you and the government can positively track who called whom and when. Uh, but what the back-end server does with info harvested by scripts from your browser is unknown to you and the government. The offender can claim whatever they want. So... The whole system is fundamentally flawed. The best do not track option is an educated user, Dusan Malachik. I, I guess he's right. What do you well, think? Um, the problem is, first of all, once upon a time when tracking avoidance was as easy as disabling third-party cookies, which is still 99% of the way tracking is done and still a useful thing to do, I believe. Oh, yeah. Back, back then... Um, educating the user was really all you had to do. Turn off third-party cookies, you're not going to get tracked. Then, of course, we got Flash with, with Flash objects, and now we've got scripting with and, the, and HTML5 that actually builds in the, um, the ability to create static tracking capability into the browser. So we're really losing ground here in this battle, which is why I really think that it's going to be some some legislation, uh, at least in the U.S., that that gives users control of this. The good news is that that we've seen opt-out technologies, which always annoy me. The idea is, well, if you don't want us to track you with cookies, then go click this button and get a cookie to opt out of <laughs> right. of being tracked with cookies right. which is really what what Dusan is talking about right. is now if that was a unique cookie that you got that obviously is really a huge problem because then you're being tracked with your unique don't track me cookie assuming that everyone who says don't track me gets the same don't track me cookie then you would be opaque as a group but the good news is all it would take is browser manufacturers or a, a spec, a do not track spec for browsers to create a new header, a query header. We know that there are query headers like host and, um, you know, uh, expires if and, um, well, and, and the main URL um, and, of course, cookies and, and a number of things which the browser is able to send out with the query. All we need is the a universal definition of another header, which would be do not track. And so 
if the user says they don't want to be tracked, they configure their browser to only issue queries oh, that's good. with that do not track header. Now, it's true that it's completely up to the us trusting the other side not to be tracking us. Um, that is to say, does that mean we won't accept cookies from them or we will accept cookies from them, um, but they're not going to track us with those cookies? I mean... And, and and this is why I think ultimately legislation is going to have to be put in place to criminalize the, I mean, with some serious penalties, the tracking of people who have explicitly made their intentions clear that they do not wish to be tracked. And so we need the browser to work on our behalf as our agent to 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 make that assertion for every single query we make it would be flagged with do not track this and then we we have legislation at the other end that enforces policies of those who otherwise would wish to track us um in order to give our request for non tracking some you know some clout yeah. then then we've got the problem of opting in because you know the argument the 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 argument for tracking is which i've always found a little specious frankly is oh well you know we need this to generate revenue so our advertisers are only going to pay us if we allow the people who visit our site to be tracked so it's like well okay i mean it's one thing to see ads it's i've never been convinced that this whole the whole you know customized ad concept works have you ever felt leo that you're getting ads meant for you when you go to random sites well when i go to my gmail it'll give me ads that are based on the email i'm reading whether that uh, which means is very different of course yeah yeah but that's all they can do i mean okay so i'm looking at um an email i got about uh ces and um somebody in school and the the ads were day trip to Kyoto, Antarctica expeditions. I am going to Antarctica. It doesn't mention that in the email, so obviously it's keeping track of that. See polar bears for less, European cycling tours, Disney's performing arts, transatlantic tips. It must know that I'm going on a cruise, uh, so it is targeted. Well, that's those are those are Google ads and Gmail, right? And so I don't have a problem with that because they're using the context of what they know about what they know about you, right. not going out to a third party. And so my, the, the argument has always, the pro-tracking argument has been that because they will learn about who people are over time, the ads that are served by third parties will be more relevant to you. And I've never experienced that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, they'd like to. Look, let's face it. That's what they want to do. It's not that, the, it's not that they're trying to appease us or somehow, you know, blow smoke because advertisers don't want to waste energy on advertising to people who aren't interested. But you're right. I just went to Mashable, which has a lot of ads. And UC Davis is offering me a degree. I guess that wouldn't be appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to support, uh, here's a web server. Um, yeah, it's, you're right. It's and, and, and I think that that's often the case. That they, but that's just because their system ain't working. Well, exactly. I don't. I think all of this is. I'm. I've always found it questionable that tracking actually works at all. Yet it's clearly 
a privacy violation. So right. the, the, the whole concept seems ill-advised and lopsided. Right. You're mm-hmm. distinguishing that from what Facebook and Google do because Facebook yes. knows about you. And yes, Google and knows when, about and, you. And Google search. When you go to Google and you put in a bunch of keywords and right. search, it's tied to the I mean, search. That, that's yeah. a brilliant, br- I mean, it's why Google is the size they are. Right. It's a brilliant use of, you know, of, of immediate, oh, look, here's some paid ads down the column and some things on top and, and I know what they are. I know that they're 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 um, sponsored insertions out of my search results. I mean, I have no problem with that. Very different from exactly as you said, you know, going to some random site that has ads and expecting them to be as relevant to you as opposed to somebody else. I just I've never seen that actually functioning. Your point even in is, the days when I wasn't fighting tracking. Right. Your point is tracking cookies do nothing. I don't think they do anything but upset everybody. Right. Good point. Good point. Uh, Moving to number four, Pete Burtis in New Hampshire. One more thing for your list of must-haves before you'll implant a chip. (laughs) We talked about putting our FIDs in our under subcutaneously uh, for identification purposes. Quick and simple. I want any implanted chip I have to be able to authenticate the remote device that's trying to authenticate me before it does anything else. Let me load the public keys of devices I trust onto my implanted chip. Or better yet, let me load my company's root certificate onto my chip. And then I'll automatically trust every RFID door lock at my company. If done correctly, this makes tracking you from a distance by your chip impossible because it'll ignore queries from any devices it doesn't trust and also addresses things like replay attacks. Sure, your device memory might be an issue, but if it's implanted anyway, why not just make it a little bigger? (laughs) Oh, dear. He says... Yeah, 16 gig micro SD card and plant nicely between my thumb and forefinger. Thanks for the great show, uh, Pete. Um, well, first of all, it, it that is an uh, an absolutely great idea. The problem is that it's not just memory; it's processing power, and public key crypto is very expensive in terms of processing power. You know, we now take it for granted because we've got chips in our machines that are running at four gigahertz but don't forget they've got big honking heat sinks on them with fans rapidly taking the all the heat that they generate off as quickly as possible so the only reason this technology the the public key crypto is feasible is that we can we can afford to dump a huge amount of electricity into the chip which is going to turn into heat while it's doing this processing work the What's inherent with an implanted chip is that is you certainly don't want a battery in there that's going to leak chemistry into your body um, and also expire after some length of time. So all of these chips are are from a power standpoint, they are passive in that they work as a transponder. That is, they're excited by the magnetic field, which briefly powers them enough to just barely receive something and send something back. So at least for now, we just don't have the state of the art to, you know, bury a chunk of a computer in us. I mean, I guess you could find some place it would fit. Um, but <laughs> but then uh, still, the problem is power. You, you really, you don't want something highly invasive, um, you know, contacts on your skin or a or a socket, like a, it's or like a pacemaker or something. Exactly. So 
So powering it is the problem. I will say that having thought about this a lot since we did the the tracking podcast um, and listeners, I, I credit with reminding me about Bluetooth. Um, for me, I think Bluetooth solves a lot of my problems because I do have a Bluetooth enabled BlackBerry and I could easily set up a little receiver in the garage so that instead of a key on the garage door, I just have a button and it's the button is only enabled when my cell phone is nearby. So, and that's in my pocket. So it sort of gives me, you know, and the same thing for the front door. So it gives me sort of the best of, you know, of what I was trying to achieve and I don't have to wait for any scar tissue to heal. <laughs> There's another technology called near field communications that Google's really pushing heavily, NFC. In fact, my uh, my latest phone, the Nexus S, the uh, late, latest Google phone, has NFC built into it. There's very few places you can use it now. But it's not. it wouldn't be very good for a garage door because you'd have to get out of the car. It doesn't have much range. It has a meter or less. So. Right, and that's by design. Right. It's very, very I kind of like power. that. Yes. And this, because it's tied to the phone... You could have certificates. You could have all sorts of information going on. You've got a very powerful processor behind plenty it. You've got lots of, of memory. Plenty. Yeah. Yes, plenty of technology. I suspect that's going to win over implantation of chips. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I don't know. Call me crazy. Uh, let's see. Question five. Scott in Winters, California. He, he wants to know about DDoS and spoofing the source IP. Very few people know more about DDoSing huh. than Steve Gibson having fought it. Uh, Steve, in last week's listener feedback, you mentioned the DDoS. What is that? Uh, um, distributed. Distributed denial of service attacks. And software is being used by the WikiLeaks-related attacks. Anonymous was going after uh, uh, people like PayPal and Amazon who had banned WikiLeaks or canceled their accounts. And how the IP addresses of the attackers are not hidden with the method that Anonymous was using. One of the more popular tools for DDoS is a network utility called HPing at hping.org. It lets you send a flood of packets, a DOS attack, and spoof the originating IP address if desired. Oh, we're getting to raw sockets, I have a feeling. You can literally say you are a Microsoft.com or 192.168.1.1 or whatever you want with a single command line option. Dash A, double dash spoof, host name. Use this option in order to set a fake IP source address. This option ensures <laughs> it's okay for us to tell everybody this. I guess everybody knows it. Yeah. Anybody who wants to know it knows it. You could Google DDoS. Uh, this option ensures that the target will not gain your real address. However, replies will be sent to the spoofed address. So if you're looking for your ACK, <laughs> forget it. Most of the time, people don't care about the ACK. In order to see how it's possible to perform spoofed idle scanning, see the HPing 3 how-to. Yow, he says. <laughs> I well, like that. I, got a, I got a big kick out of the fact that it has its own domain. So H this is not... You know, yeah. hping.org. Yeah. Anybody wants to do any DOS attacks, here's what there you use. There you go. That's so does it have to use raw sockets to do the spoofing? Yes, it would need to. So it would be unable to do that on Windows platforms. Thanks to Mr. Steve Gibson, by the way. <laughs> yep, you, and I wanna, the reason I want to give you credit for that is you got so much heat. So many websites. I guess Windows fanboys were mad that you were attacking Microsoft, saying you got to take this raw socket stuff out. It's in it's in Unix. It's in more powerful operating systems. But by putting it in a consumer operating system, they were just turning Windows into an attack machine. Well, and it was a mistake. I really, I, I sincerely believe that it was just something Microsoft hadn't considered. It was they, on their checklist of capabilities of of Linux. Well, we got to have that. 
Well, and yes, and you know, they're they're ninety five, ninety eight me sort of were originally their more their more end user consumer line never had full raw sockets. You were not able to to just generate any packet that you wanted to and stick it on the internet. The stack, the so called TCP IP stack, it provided your local machine's IP address automatically as that packet was leaving the machine. What, what happened was that Microsoft, you know, ended the life of the, what was sort of the originally the, the 16, then the 32-bit machines, and they, they took NT, and, which they had evolved into Windows 2000, and then they evolved that into XP. And so my concern was that they were taking a more of a commercialized operating system which did have full raw sockets that 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 te- technology existed in windows 2000 and and in nt and without thinking you know they gave it the xp candy coating making it look more friendly and cuz cuz windows 2000 was you know it was more of a server platform originally and so th- they were going to be putting it out it was going to be what was pre-installed in all these machines and laptops and and it just didn't need this capability to allow software on the machine to to just arbitrarily set the source IP of the packets that it was sending. There is no, in the original internet design, there is no defensible real reason for ever lying about the source of a packet because the whole point is communication. And you can only have that if the remote and the, the 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 recipient of your packet knows how to communicate back to you. So it made sense that, I mean, it's the reason the earlier Microsoft Windows operating systems worked so well is that they just did this for you. They didn't have any problem doing anything on the internet. They were full internet citizens without this capability. And so my argument to Microsoft was, don't let this go out into the mass market because it's just going to cause trouble. And it really did. In fact, it was... The um, MS Blast Worm right. that blasted Microsoft with their own raw sockets at their own IP address. And it was after getting burned by that, they finally understood, oh, that's what Gibson meant. Right. So, and there are powerful operating systems that you can do the things you need to do if you need raw sockets. But let's not put it in, the, in a machine that's ill-protected in the hands of a, a consumer that doesn't understand security. Well, and look how many machines are infected with, with, with um, bots now. All of those right. bots would be capable of dramatically worse attacks. Now, the fact is, many sites were taken down by the anonymous group using their tool, which did not do spoofing. And so that was one of the arguments against my argument was, wait a minute, you don't need spoofing to do denial of service attacks. That's true. But if you don't use spoofing, then you can be backtracked. And that is what happened for users who unwittingly were wanting to support the WikiLeaks, the attack of the attack on people who were who were um, acting against WikiLeaks. They were using the uh, what was it? It was that low Earth orbit thing. Yeah, right? LOIC, yeah. L-O-I-C um, in order to uh, attack people who. Um, who the group anonymous wanted to go after and the consequence of that was that they were creating 
standard TCP connections and just moving payloads of data. So it was just a data saturation attack. But to create a TCP connection, you have to have a round trip. And if you're going to have a round trip of data, then you you are, by definition, having to disclose your IP in order for that round trip to get completed. So um, it's, yeah, you know, yes, there are tools like HPing out there. They run under... Um, you know, Linux OSs are, are typically where they're being used uh, and they work, you know, they work well. Um, and uh, the good news is uh, that it's becoming um, common enough that this is no longer, you know, fringe, fringe available. That's why I didn't mind talking about it here. I want to mention briefly and then we'll get back to our questions. Jim Stevens is coming up with... Uh a suggestion to prevent unintended code execution. Kind of an interesting one. I think we've heard before, but we'll we'll talk about that. A few more questions to go with Steve Gibson and uh, security now. Just want to remind folks who are looking for a way to fight spam. And this this is a, a sophisticated sec- technology. Most of you will be using Gmail or some other solution that has built-in fam- spam fighting. And Gmail does a great job, so you don't need this. But if you run your own server, actually, I, I use, to be honest, I use both. Uh, I run leoville.com. Tom does sub brilliant. A lot of companies don't want to give up their email server for security or privacy reasons. If you run your own server, you've got to address the spam issue. I realized that when I started using leoville.com and just had it forward to a non-spam filtered uh, mailbox. It overwhelmed it. That's why in 2004, I started using MailRoute. And I still use it. And believe me, I recommend it highly. MailRoute is a a uh, uh, very interesting solution. You change your MX record on your server so that the mail that comes to your server initially goes to mail route. Doesn't doesn't hit your server initially. It, it bounces off onto mail route where it is purified and then sent on back to you. It's a very simple process. It takes a second to turn on this uh, MX routing, and as soon as it does, you'll notice an amazing thing. Ninety-seven percent of the mail to Leoville.com. Ninety-seven percent is spam. That's ninety-seven percent I never see. I see that 3%. And then, by the way, I use uh, I forward it to Gmail. So I have additional spam filtering. By that, by the time my mail gets to me, it is just stuff that I want and nothing else. No false positives. In fact, MailRoute takes pride in saying one and a quarter million false positives. And it's fewer than that, I got to tell you. It's fantastic. I want you to try it. You can uh, try it free for a month. And if you decide to buy, you'll get 10% off for life if you use MailRoute.info. Tom Johnson knows that uh, that's the only people who use that address are are, are listeners to the uh, network. MailRoute.info. Find out more there. They do have individual accounts. That's something Tom did for us because so many of you wanted an account for yourself. But really, they focus on the servers. A lot of companies, a lot of universities use MailRoute. Find out why. MailRoute.info. Question six, Mr. Gibson. And uh, this one comes to us from Jim Stevens in Massachusetts. Thanks for the incredible podcast. I've been a big fan since the beginning. In a not-so-distant episode, Steve described his frustration regarding the losing battle we all face attempting to make our machines secure. I personally (laughs) am sick of spending half my life making sure friends and family's computers receive the latest updates for all software, educating them about sandboxy and NoScript, and trying to explain why anti-malware software in general is a reactive approach to problems, not a proactive approach. Life is too short for this. The analogy I use for malware is cancer. Once you have it, it's almost impossible to get rid of. It's much better not to get it in the first place. 
Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. My question, you recently spoke about completely re-architecting our machines to prevent security problems in the first place. I think we talked about the the uh, turn or the Van Norm, Neumann model versus where data and and um and uh, uh, code are combined versus other models where they're not. Right, the Harvard architecture. Harvard architecture. It seems a major cause of our problems are caused by buffer overruns in stack space. It's true. In your stack episode, you described how the stack is used for both the return address for functions and for data, for local variables. If too much data, and by the way, often for code as well, if too much data is written to a local variable, it can overwrite the return address of the function, and if carefully designed, could cause undesired code to be executed off the stack. Why don't we have two stacks? One stack contains only return addresses for functions and would allow recursion and all the other functionality we use today. The second stack contained data for local variables. Overflowing a buffer, while bad, would just cause data corruption and not unattended code execution. Of course, we'd have to synchronize the two stacks so the correct two local variables are popped when a function returns, but this problem seems minor compared to the frustration we have to deal with now. What do you think? Jim Stevens, reinventing computer <laughs> technology on the fly. What do you think? Well, there, I, I would say that's a... A useful idea. It's a restating um, of that same concept of not mixing data and code. Yes, and I mean it, it's also it, it's also the case that if we were really good about enforcing the the structures we have now, for example, we have data execution protection. The, the and and this and in the Intel architecture is the so-called um, non-execute bit where any page of memory can be flagged as this should not be executable. So even though we don't have the, the physical architecture of a Harvard machine, uh, the, the, the Harvard architecture was named after the, univer the, the university, Harvard University Mark I computer, which used paper tape and relays. Um, so it was like a really early machine, but there was... So there was no concept that instructions and data were the same. All of the machines we have today, you know, even like when we were talking about my, my favorite old PDP-8 back in the early 70s, that's a single block of memory which is, is homogeneous. It contains instructions and data. The instructions can refer to themselves, to their neighbors, to, to, to data and there's nothing that it, there there's there's no division between instructions and the data in a harvard architecture the the hardware itself enforces this differentiation so that instructions even if they're like referring to the their own location they're at, they're not referring to themselves they're inherently referring to data in another physical another physical space which may happen to be the same offset the same address as the instruction but the instruction can't refer to itself in fact i remember some time ago we were talking about a voting machine which whose design i liked and admired because even in this day and age they deliberately created a harvard architecture in order to increase the security of the voting machine so that the no instructions could access, no instructions could be executed out of the data space. There was no way for data to like bring instructions along and modify 
the 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 instructions that were in in a physically separate place. So so first of all, if we just did what Jim suggested, that would be a solution. If if we kept return addresses in a separate space, not on the stack on the same stack as data, and, and in fact there are microcomputers, smaller machines um, today that have their own return stack separate from a data stack. Not really for security. This was more more done just for cost saving and because they're sort of you know toy machines, not big industrial, you know, P- PC mainframe sort of machines like what we're all sitting in front of. Um, so so Jim's idea would work, but as you said, Leo, there are many ideas like this. And what it, essentially, we have all the tools we need now, even with, you know, the Intel architecture, which is a, a, a von Neumann architecture where everything is mixed together because we are able... If we only did it right, and if we only did it consistently and thoroughly, we are able to cause um, data never to be executed. And remember, we talked earlier, too, about the return-oriented programming where bad guys get um, able to avoid data execution protection by executing the little tail ends of existing subroutines. So, So there's another example where... Even this doesn't solve the whole problem because it's really a big problem. Question seven is Dan in uh, Daniel in Provo, Utah. Uh, you mentioned in episode 278 that hard disk encrypting ransomware is making a comeback, this time with public key encryption. It seems that for something like an entire hard drive, known plain text attacks may be helpful in determining the decryption key, even if a cipher block, cha- if cipher block chaining is used. So the potential quality of known plain text on a whole hard drive makes it very likely that enough information can be determined to make a strong attack and get back the original data, especially given good reverse engineering of the code that did the encryption in the first place. In other words, the bad guys who aren't using strong encryption aren't going to be very effective if somebody really needs to get back in. So the best remedy to avoid getting snared by these guys and to use whatever governmental remedies may exist to get their operation shut down and provide the necessary disincentive against similar operations in the future... Oh, that's the best remedy. <laughs> Sorry. The best remedy is to avoid getting snared and shut their operations down. But the technological approach may still be helpful for some. Thanks so much for the podcast and other great products. I found Security Now a few years ago made a point of going back and listening from the beginning. It's been instructive and entertaining. What is he trying to say? I'm not sure I understand. Well, um, he's suggesting that that one of the known ways that cryptography can be attacked is if you know what the non-encrypted data is. And we were just talking about that earlier in this podcast relative to GSM. With the GSM system, the the technology they use is a simple XORing of their cryptographic stream of pseudo-random data with the plain text to get the ciphertext. And it is because so much of the GSM protocol is known that if you XOR that with what was in the air, you get back the the cipher stream. That's the Achilles heel of of GSM when you've got those rainbow tables that allow you to go essentially to reverse a a one-way function, go the other way on the one-way function. What's different here is 
the assuming that the guys that did the ransomware did a good job, this doesn't really apply. First of all, think TrueCrypt. TrueCrypt is whole drive encryption. It is, for example, what the ransomware people might use. And it's open source. So here you've got an industrial strength. I mean, TrueCrypt is as good as we know how to make hard drive encryption, and it's open source. So bad guys, I mean, as far as I know, they did. I have no knowledge of that one way or the other. But, you know, if you have TrueCrypt out there and they've solved all the problems for you, why not just take it and and use that 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 cryptography? So the 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 way TrueCrypt operates, even under a strong cipher with like you know AES one one twenty eight or two fifty six bit AES, is it's taking blocks of one hundred twenty eight bits at a time and encrypting them. And it is probably using, I don't remember now whether TrueCrypt uses cipher block chaining, but that's a technique where you use the results from the prior encryption, mixing it in with the next one, which creates a dependency from the start all the way down through the end of the sector. So that it's not just like you're encrypting each of the 128-bit blocks standalone so that they would not be interdependent. But instead, you, you, you're immediately after the first block, you're mixing the results of that into the second. And it is fortunately a reversible process, allowing you to perform decryption. So the result of, the result of that is that we're sufficiently removed from the environment of, of GSM that even if you had, even if you knew a huge amount of what was on the hard drive, um, you're still not going to be able to reverse um, the enciphering that ransomware does any more than you could reverse what what TrueCrypt has done. And we know how strong TrueCrypt is. You know, governments have pounded on it trying to 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 decrypt the contents of bad guys' hard drives. And unfortunately, if in in that case, they've been unable to. It's just it really is the case that even even a known plain text attack against a hard drive is ineffective if the if the encryption is done correctly and with TrueCrypt we have an open source model of how to do it correct correctly. Question eight Charlie or Charles in Houston, Texas, he's wondering about something called FHSS. Uh, I just purchased a Lorex not live snap wireless video baby monitor. Because I found it on sale in a local store. It looks really convenient. I haven't opened it yet because I'm not very sure about the security of the wireless video feeds from the cameras. And that was a problem uh, some years ago. Somebody noted that there was no security on those video. You can drive right. by and see anybody's baby monitor. Uh, and the company's not responding when I ask for more information. Uh, the fellow I spoke with on the phone sounded like he was reading the information for the first time himself. He was in a call center. Didn't seem to be a company employee. And they haven't responded to email. Well, I'm sure they're a Chinese company and... I mean, come on. How much do you pay for that baby monitor? The only information I find about the product from their website is that it uses something called FHSS. And they advertise that, quote, the long-range digital wireless signal has a range of up to 450 feet with clear line of sight and is secure and interference-free. It won't interfere with your cordless phone, microwave, 
or router, and no nosy neighbors misspelled will be able to eavesdrop on you and your family. Their lack of response or specific details violates my TNO policy. I need more information. My look in FHSS doesn't give me much of a warm fuzzy. On the other hand, it isn't just a simple broadcast at one frequency that anyone can tune into. The convenience factor for this system is why I haven't returned it and moved on. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Here's hoping you can help me before it's too late to return the system. Charles. Well, the acronym he's using, FHSS, is well known. Uh, it stands for Frequency Hopping Spread Spectrum. Oh, well, that would be effective. Yes. Um, so long as the bad guy doesn't have the same receiver and or the same key. Um, I, I tracked it down, looked at the website, looked at the documentation. You know, the, the, the fact that they're talking about using frequency hopping spread spectrum, um, that's something you do. You get security from it, but you probably do it more for interference prevention because the idea, just as we were talking with, with Bluetooth, Bluetooth is also a frequency hopping sp spread spectrum technology. In the Bluetooth case, you'll will remember from a couple of weeks ago that the the hopping the frequency hopping sequence, which has to be known in order to eavesdrop, is based on the essentially the equivalent of the Bluetooth device's MAC address and the secret key which was established between the endpoints during the Bluetooth pairing. At that point, then, they're able to use the clock from the master of the Bluetooth in order to synchronize themselves and agree about which frequency they're going to be on from one, from one packet of Bluetooth to the next. The question is, how has this technology in this, I'm sure inexpensive as you commented leo and we don't know who designed it baby monitor how has it been designed to create a unique hopping sequence between any two pairs of monitor and receiver if it has been it, it seems to me unlikely that it has been it's probably got a clock um the receiver probably um looks at the clock and and essentially has a hardwired frequency hopping sequence. Again, I have no knowledge of this. I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if somebody else with the same monitor could receive the could receive your signal from yours. Maybe not. Maybe they've they've there's some pairing procedure, or there's you know they're like they come from the factory pre-keyed in pairs so that no so that you can't buy another pair and they would be the same that would be great if that were the case in which case if there's any evidence of that that there's you know a pairing between them of some sort same same code for example then i would say it's very secure absent that if, if another one of the same make and model monitors could receive could receive the same signal then it's obviously the case that all of them are running the same frequency hopping spread spectrum sequence, in which case you've got good immunity from noise, but you know, no effective security. Probably they're they're set up as pairs, I would hope, in the factory, which would make them a nice device. Yeah. I mean, come on. What are they gonna see? Uh, presuming you're not wandering around naked in your baby's bedroom. <laughs> right. 
And you'd have to work pretty hard to get it. Aaron in Oregon says about 154 nonillion years. That's a number I don't hear a lot. Nonillion. That's how long the website, howsecureismypassword.net, says a desktop PC would take to create your perfect passwords, your GS, GRC-generated passwords, which are, to refresh people, 64 bytes, right? 64 characters, characters long, including alphabetic and punctuation and numeric, right? Right. So, so it's saying it's how long would it um, take to crack a, a GRC generated password is what that how secure is my password. And I, and I presume he's talking about something like RSA or some sort of uh, prime number encryption. But the well, question is, how do you calculate it? That's right. his question. Right. And so uh, the good news is, first of all, it's it's a fun little site. I would I would uh, commend our listeners to go check it out. It's how secure is my password dot net. Uh, and don't take it very seriously, but it's cute. Um, you have to have scripting and <laughs> you have to have scripting enabled, or it won't do anything. In fact, it tells you in huge lettering on your screen that you have to turn scripting on if you don't. Even so, the lettering is pretty large, and it's very cute. It runs JavaScript, and you type a password in, and if you use any of of a five of a five hundred most common passwords then it'll say, well, that's one of the most common passwords, so that's not going to take long at all. Um, otherwise, as you enter your password, it's continuous, continuously estimating how long it would take to crack. What's nice is that the source code for the whole thing is provided, so I was able to look at it and answer the question, how does one calculate something like this? Now, the fact is, there's no set rule for how you calculate this. This site is doing a nice job, but not a fantastic job. What the code does is it looks at the, at the string you have entered so far. And if it finds anything that is lowercase, then it assumes you have an alphabet of 26. If it finds anything that is uppercase, it assumes you have an alphabet of another 26. If it finds any digits then it assumes that you have an alphabet of another 10 because you've got digits 0 through 9. If it finds any of, of a set of special characters, 13, you know, like, you know, exclamation point, at sign, pound sign, dollar sign, percent sign, and so forth, then it assumes you've got special characters in your password from an alphabet of 13. So that tells it in its estimate, in its estimation, how large the alphabet is from which the number of characters you have entered are taken. And it does some simple math to figure out how many combinations then. Essentially, it raises, it raises um, the, the alphabet size to the power of the number of characters you've typed, which would give us the total number of, co of possible combinations of that password. Then it assumes that your computer, your PC-scale machine, can, can test 10 million of those a second, which is pretty fast, depending upon, you know, what it's actually trying to do. You know, I mean, that's, that's a lot of testing. If you were cracking into a website, you certainly can't do 10 million attempts per second. So, so again, that's why I don't take any of this very seriously. Also... This doesn't check to see whether you have, you know, alternating upper lowercase, 
how many special characters you have, how many digits. If you have one digit, it gives it, it doesn't change it really, uh, or uh, it, it doesn't give you a different calculation than if you had two digits. So it's a it's a sort of a simple minded approach. Mostly, what I was I what I was interested in was what the heck is nonillion, and it's nine. It's like well, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion. How many zeros is in a nonillion? So I, the code answered that question for me. Oh, good. Because he has a thousand years, then we've got a million, yeah. then a billion, a trillion, a quadrillion, quintillion, <laughs> sextillion, septillion, septillion, septillion octillion. octillion, and then no nillion. <laughs> and then there's decillion, and I don't know what you do when you get to 11. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, it's Latin. But for what it's worth, no nillion is probably about as far as you need to go. First of all, we're all we're all long dead. Uh, many many no million years before, you know, this thing has cracked your password. Um, and if 154 no million years is the result of this calculation for one of GRC's passwords, which is 64 characters long and looks like absolute gibberish with with all of those different character sets engaged, then. You know, I don't know how you get anything more complicated than that. Yes. <laughs> Sufficient is the word. It is indeed. <laughs> Our last question, Steve. Jared in Australia. He doesn't understand why software flaws are so hard to find. Gosh darn it. Every day, every month, a new flaw. Regarding the possible trouble with BSD's security from as far back as 10 years ago. By the way, I think we were all in agreement that that was BS. Yes, not even D, just no D. <laughs> I don't understand how it's even reasonable for something that might be wrong to exist within BSD's code for that long. Why wouldn't people know? It's open source. Why aren't these problems just seen and fixed if they exist? What am I not getting? Well, don't, don't confuse open source with closed source because that's a big difference. That's a big difference. But, of course, it, it is the case that, and, I, and I've mentioned this before, and this also leads us into next week's topic which is this fuzzing technology, which is very interesting and very powerful. You may remember, Leo, that, that back when we were talking to um, the guys at EI, that they had a whole room full of machines that they were just, they were like throwing parameters at different um, network protocols and finding bugs when the machines crashed. So they were keeping a log of what was going on and when, the, when a machine would crash, they would say, ooh, that's not good. What did we just ask it that made it crash? And can we leverage that into an exploit? Mm. That was one of their approaches. So, so that's sort of the opposite side of the spectrum from sitting down with the source code and staring at it. And the reason that's effective where staring at the source code isn't is that, is that source code is communication. Source code tells you what it's trying to do. And so when you're reading it, you're sort of agreeing with it. You know, it's you get sucked into its, it, in, into its own intent. The intent of the programmer is communicated through the source code. In fact, the better the coder is, typically, the better their intent is. You know, we've all seen examples like um, fourth, which is very difficult to read, 
Uh, now I'm going to get hate mail when I say for if having it's said properly that. written. It <laughs> reads just like English in reverse, Polish. And um, what was that? There was a wacky OPL one was another PL1, language. Yeah. You had, APL, you had to have a special keyboard. A and APL. And in fact, there were contests. I'm sorry, I meant APL, not PL1. Yeah, PL1 APL. was actually very right. Pascal-like and easy to read. It was APL. There were contests to see who could like do the most work in a single line of APL. So in you know, incredibly dense, very powerful operators that didn't communicate clearly. But most code... And, and and you see this in open source code. The programmer is trying to communicate, is actively trying to communicate what the code's intention is for the purpose of, at some point in the future, communicating it to other people. And so, so fuzzing, which is our topic for next week, is sort of the opposite side of that. It knows nothing about the programmer's intention. It's just trying to see what it can find. And so to answer Jared's question, uh, you know, as a non-programmer, I can really understand why it would be confusing that something just, you know, you could have these bugs in code that no one can see. And, and I'm, as a developer, having done a lot of bug hunting myself, I, I know that I get seduced by what I'm reading. I'm reading the intention of the programmer rather than the the detail at the level that the computer executes it and if there's a surprising difference between those two things <sighs> and so this leads us to next week it does indeed fuzzing fuzzy wuzzy fuzzy wuzzy fuzzy wuzzy fuzzy wuzzy pause had a computer <laughs> Steve, well, it's been great a great way to start to 2011. I love it. Uh, if people have questions for next time, which will be uh, episode 284, if all holds true, you go to grc.com slash feedback, and you can ask those questions there. It's not exactly an email. It's a form. makes it easier yep. for Steve to parse. Uh, but you can find many other things there, so it's worth going, including Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive and maintenance util recovery and maintenance utility. Everyone should have Spinrite if you've got a hard drive. Uh, also... Um, let's not forget all those freebies Steve gives you that great software, including the DNS benchmarking utility. I love that perfect paper passwords, his passwords utility, GRC as in Gibson research corporation.com. Steve also has the full show notes there, the 16 kilobit version for the bandwidth impaired, which he himself does edits himself with his own little hands, the transcriptions, which he pays for himself because Steve is devoted to you. You'll find it all at grc.com. Steve, thank you so much. Thanks, Leo, and have a great week in uh, in Las Vegas at CES. We'll be, I'm sure I and our listeners will be following you closely. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.